Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Wrapping up our 15 and 60 part two here. Let's get right to it, Danny. Who are we going to next? The Indiana Pacers. So the Pacers have had a pretty eventful time since the last 15 and 60. They are now 20 and 19, three and six since the last 15 and 60. They're 14th in net rating, a slight positive, positive 0.3. Sixth in offense, 24th in defense, 538 gives them a 46% chance of making the playoffs. And the reason why it was eventful is that they were three and six, but four of those six losses came when Victor Oladipo didn't play and in those games they lost all four and they had a negative 16.9 net rating which was dead last in the NBA during that time they looked lost offensively and I gained an appreciation it's true that they don't really have a natural replacement for him so that was a, a part of this but overall I was you know I, I I think that it made me appreciate what they've gotten from him so far this year yeah absolutely and it's not like they played some murderous row of teams while he was out and it in some ways i feel like it validates our preseason predictions of them because if victor oladipo had just been the same guy that he's been so far in his career i think they would have looked a lot more like what they've looked like i mean they, they as you mentioned they still don't have a natural replacement for him but it would have looked a lot more like what they looked like in those four games uh but they do in fact have oladipo and those playoff odds are really i think far too low they really declined because they've been playing so poorly those odds don't know that oladipo has missed that time and then also we talked about some of the Pistons potential struggles with Reggie Jackson out of the lineup so I'm pretty confident as long as they can avoid any major injuries from here on out uh, that they should be in the mix for the playoffs um they recently uh, made a few transactions you wanted to talk about well yeah so the big one they did was we talked about it on yesterday's podcast but January 7th was the cutdown day for guys that had partial guarantees to make it fully guaranteed and they ended up cutting Damian Wilkins and uh Jimmy Yellow wrote a nice story for the Indy Star about how the way that the, the Pacers did it is actually they told Wilkins before their game against the Bulls, which was Oladipo's return game as well, and then started him. And he, you know, like, I'm sure a lot of people would feel differently, like, about how to do that, about knowing that it's your last game with the team. But he went out there, had 11 points in 22 minutes in his in, in the start. And he basically said that it was it was no pressure because he already knew what was going to happen. And so he could just have fun with it. And I, I applaud that mentality i'm i'm sure they're like it and part of the reason why that'll resonate a little bit with people is if you know maybe get him another job we'll have to see but he hasn't played a ton with the pacers this year after being a surprise make of the roster but now they have this 
unusual combination of an open roster spot and about five, I think it's about five, seven. I haven't looked up the exact number right now after the Wilkins cut uh, uh, in cap space. So depending on what they want to do, they can use that in a variety of different ways. They could sign somebody, they could they could acquire somebody via trade. And I understand why they didn't want to give that up. And so they, I think they made the right decision. Yeah, and certainly I don't think there was not much market for uh, the I want to say 37 year old Wilkins's services before the start of the season he was brought in as kind of a vet mentor kind of guy brought maybe even play a little bit more than they anticipated frankly but he could always be brought back uh, on 10 day contracts he could be brought back at, at the end of the season you know I'm sure he's been a great influence around this team I wanted to return to something uh, that we've been talking about here, which is uh, their big man combinations. Miles Turner and Thaddeus Young, the most common of those, 715 minutes, those have been quite good together. A plus 5.3 net rating, which is actually a little bit of a surprise to me uh, because, you know, it seemed like Sabonis uh, was doing so well at center in his minutes, but that's only uh, plus 2.7 net rating, so about half as good, you might say. Uh, defense stays about the same with those two guys offense getting a, a little bit better with turner out there and then uh, turner and sabonis not that bad you know still uh negative 0.9 when you're looking that is your third most preferred big man combination that's not the end of the world although the defense does decline that's not a surprise i think sabonis is better at center defensively and you know thaddeus young uh, provides something that he doesn't really in terms of his uh, versatility uh also noteworthy though is that if you look at their starters with sabonis which we have a pretty decent sample size on that they are plus 8.4 whereas the starters with turner are, are only plus one and so that brings the question to me as what is their best lineup at the end of games because you've got <clears throat> the sabonis turner decision and then also maybe the lance stevenson versus boyan bogdanovich decision my instinct with this with the center spot i still think turner his defensive potential is there but you're right that it is more potential than it is current you know current iteration because he's still trying to figure out how to block shots and rebound at the same time you know that balance that is so hard for for young bigs to really get to and then with 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 Lance versus Bojan my call right now is that it's a little bit situation dependent there have been times when Lance has actually been really good for them in crunch time just because he can be aggressive he can create off the dribble and that that Oklahoma City game is a perfect example of that it was and he was also big in the game against uh they had a, a win against the Pistons a couple like I think it was about a month ago where Stevenson was a big part of the reason then why they won. So when he's hot, I think you could do that. But what, what Bojan brings is just the lower, kind of the lower usage in terms of the ball in their hands guy. And that can be really valuable if Oladipo's feeling it or if they're getting a good game from Darren Collison. So I don't like hedgy answers like that sometimes, but I don't think either of those guys has been clearly great enough to say, oh, well, they're always the right answer. Yeah, and I think that's right. If you look just at the raw statistics, lineups with Collison, Oladipo, Young, and Lance Stevenson in there, you know, with allowing for the fact that it could be either Saponis or Turner at center. They've done awesome. 113 possessions plus 21.1 points uh, per 100 possessions. But now, fortunately, the tools that we have enable us to dig in deeper to say, all right, why is this so awesome? And the reason why is that they've shot 62% on three-pointers in those minutes, which basically amounts to, you know, one game or so. And they, despite hitting the 62%, they rarely take threes. They take threes uh, as only 23% of their shots, which is basically like a bottom of the league 
type of level and although this team overall takes a lot of shots from mid-range and hits them they take 26 percent of their shots as long twos outside the paint so i think really you probably based on that it's fool's gold to some degree and so like you said i think you go with the matchup dependent right i mean oladipo boyan they're not going to be able to guard the best wing on another team lance probably even is not the greatest option there but he's the best that they have the only guy they have really who has a decent combination of size strength and quickness who can play the three and so if if the other team has lebron james or as they did paul george in that okc game when he closed it maybe you go with lance there otherwise you go with boy and get the additional shooting on the floor and when they've gone with high pick and roll with oladipo at the end of games that's been a, a very effective stratagem I want to circle back to a question that you asked, which was basically why why was the Sabonis Young combination the lower the lower offensive rating? And the answer is because they play a higher proportion of their minutes without Victor Oladipo. That combination with Victor Oladipo actually has a 115 offensive rating. Yeah. But since he hasn't been on the floor for some of those minutes, and as we said, they don't really have a suitable replacement, that's a challenge. And the Pacers will be the first of a couple of teams where I had a section here originally in our notes about what's going on with blank player because it had been a while since we heard something and so that was uh glenn robinson the third because he was cleared to run jump and shoot a month ago and then the news came down yesterday or over the weekend that he practiced and he's ahead of schedule so i believe schedule for that was the end of january so he should be back in the next little while and it will take a while you want to be patient with a guy who dealt with i mean that was a severe ankle sprain like that's basically kept him out for the entire season so the hope could be that by march or april that he's the the bridge in this spot between the question we were talking about between Lentz and, and Bojan Bogdanovic is that he's a better defensive guy, can be on some of those wings, but doesn't have to take all the shots. However, you're going to need to see him get close to right and establish himself because both Lance and Bojan are having pretty good seasons. So he's going to have to step up to show, hey, I could be that guy. Yeah, Lance still pretty inadequate from an efficiency standpoint. I think he's slightly under 50% true shooting right now. But I would, if you had to say, hey, you got to have Lance or GR3 guard the best guy the other team i probably would want to go with lance a little more experience has been in the playoffs gr3 on both ends really his production still is a little bit more theoretical in terms of three and d than with actual production and obviously coming off this major injury he said that he hoped to practice or that he hoped to return to game action prior to the all-star break a few other notes on them tj leaf who is shooting nearly 50 percent on three pointers. i'm sorry over 50 percent on three pointers 14 to 26 on the year he had 15 points on six shots against the bulls still a guy who you wonder about his defense but he's been better offensively than anticipated joe young has also been getting some minutes with oladipo out of late but only played 125 minutes on the season interestingly he's played almost none at point guard he's played 39 percent of his minutes as a shooting guard and according to cleaning the glass 59 percent of his minutes as a small forward which that's pretty amazing to think of, of what those lineups might look like i imagine he's playing with joseph and collison but I, I would have to go back and really look at that what looks like with joe young at small forward but that's definitely not a an optimal configuration and young still has not shown a ton meanwhile his back backcourt compatriot Corey joseph still hitting 40 percent from threes 36 out of 89 on the season so not a, a ton of attempts still uh and still teams you know the fact that he's hitting 40 percent has not changed the way that teams have defended them I and mean, that's been a, a topic of conversation recently of like how many shots does a bad shooter have to hit before the scouting report changes and it really opens things up because as we talked about with dylan murphy 
Murphy. It's not quite a binary thing, but you know, the scouting reports either going to say, all right, we, we just can't let this guy get a three off or, you know, we'll close out on him, but we're kind of okay with that. And you can help off the guy. And so you know, I'm sure that, or you can go under him or you can't go under him if he's in a pick and roll like with Joseph. Uh, Joseph is playing two-thirds of his minutes as the point guard but that means that he's playing plenty of time with another point guard as well usually Darren Collison and, and those lineups as you'd expect with a two-point guard lineup 117 offensive rating is awesome but basically about the same on D so they're pretty much neutral with those lineups uh they can't stop anyone but they score pretty well uh anything else you want to say on these guys yeah I just wanted to say that we we talked about how Oladipo came back but I wanted to say what he did when he came back he so there was the, oh, yeah. the Bulls were on the tail end of a back-to-back and they were you know they ended up getting their butts kicked in this game but Oladipo was a significant part of that he had 23 points on 9 of 11 shooting 9 assists 5 steals and the steals ended up being big and 6 rebounds in 24 minutes partially because they didn't need him because the game got so out of hand but it was actually there were some nice defensive plays it was the the middle of the first quarter when the game was it was still close and Oladipo was involved in three straight turnovers and finished two of those three himself and that really was started to the Bulls were losing steam at that point and you could tell just the Pacers were playing with more energy they they knew that they were competitive they knew it was a game they had a chance to win and so we'll get more of a sample after that because it's just one game against a team that you know they've been playing better recently but still isn't you know dynamos and so but it was good to see Oladipo out there yeah and good to see them defend at least for one game all right where we going next sir next up is the Philadelphia 76ers so the Sixers are 19 and 19 and a similarly 500 5 and 5 since the last 15 and 60 they still have a positive net rating plus one is good enough for 12th in the league they're 18th in offense sixth in defense and 538 gives them a 74 percent chance of making the playoffs at this moment yeah both of that offense and defensive rating uh, on the come of late as Joel Embiid has been back in the lineup as some of their injury concerns have quelled uh and that is as they've lost uh, five of six after losing nine of ten I'm going to start uh, with Ben Simmons whom uh, was not my rookie of the year he still was yours as we did our last award podcast check out him just from a statistical standpoint 53 percent true shooting but we know that he almost never takes shots outside the paint only 49 all year and, and most of those are really like very close around the free throw line when teams just go way under on him uh so on those shots outside of the paint 14 out of 49 on the season that's 28 percent the league average is 40 percent on those shots and then what's really been a concern for his efficiency is from floater range where he takes 35 percent of his shots he's 69 out of 195 so that's 35 percent and the hope was man he has you know he shoots with his right hand he's got this great touch early in the season those were really falling for him that's no longer the case and so now you, you see with those two numbers why it's just really hard for him to be as aggressive as he was earlier in the season the good news is that he continues to finish at the rim better than I think either of us thought that he would just based on how he looked in summer league when he was not a, a fantastic finisher uh 69 percent at the rim i mean a lot of those are dunks where he's able to elude guys or get out in transition where he remains a, a fabulous player he's a solid cutter as well but he's also able to just drive it and use his size at the rim he has not been bothered by the rim protectors as much as we would have thought and what all this continues to say is that he both now and i think in the future if the jumper never comes around which is 
is, uh, I think, the more likely outcome for me, in my opinion. You really have to be sensitive about who you put around Ben Simmons and the results this year that have reflected that. So right now, when he's been playing as the basically as the only primary ball handler, it gets it gets confusing to define positions with Simmons for that reason. Yeah. But so in those lineups, he has an off the the Sixers have an offensive rating of 109, which is pretty good. And when you think about where they're the, where they need to go, just in terms of talent and fit and all that kind of stuff, that's I I think that's okay, especially when their defense has been good in those minutes. But then when he's been playing with either McConnell or Markel Fultz, they're only scoring a hundred, basically one point per possession, a hundred offensive rating, and that's real bad. And really, any sort of non-shooter, reluctant shooter around him contracts their spacing so severely because then they know that Simmons driving is something that they need to stop. And so if you can recover back on that guy, it's going to be a problem. And that's why if Markel Fultz can be the Markel Fultz that he was at Washington, what we thought he would be as a draft prospect could help because you actually do have to defend him out there. So he could bridge that gap of being another guy who's a capable ball handler, but can also shoot. Yeah. And for Fultz's recovery, he has progressed to playing five on five. Some talk that maybe he could actually return in a week or two now. So that's more just speculation. But the fact that he's playing five on five and the Zapruder film-esque breakdowns of his shooting form are back now. It looks like his mid-ranger is pretty close to where it was You know when we really liked him as a draft prospect. The three-pointer is not quite the same form as he used to have. Still a little bit lower of a release and to hear people who have watched him shoot more uh, the release less consistent uh, from three but at least uh, the good news is that they're not just like hiding him away uh they're willing to actually let him shoot in public and and be subject to that scrutiny and uh, i'm encouraged i mean i I think that we'll see what he actually looks like in game action but i'm just glad that he's been able to even get back to this point because his form was just so incredibly jacked up and you know when i said hey i think there's a great chance here that this could be something that really affects his career from now on i'm not willing to back off of that yet because we got to see whether you know this actually goes in in games the way it did before you know there's still a possibility that he just never shoots it anywhere close to the way he did at washington but at least he's overcome the first hurdle of like getting his form to look normal again in practice it's a nice step and then the other part of it is just seeing how willing he is to shoot because at at the end before they shut him down and and went through all these steps he wasn't taking shots and that's a huge negative as well and I, I think that part will come around too as he just builds more confidence in it and his natural talent is just phenomenal I want to see what he can do I'd be great if it could happen by the end of the year not only for our purposes but for team building purposes for the Sixers because we don't know what draft assets they're going to have but you want to know where Fultz is at that point something else I wanted to talk about briefly oh, is... one more thing on, on Fultz sure. too but before you move on the fit issues that we talked about with Simmons of course make this all the more critical that not only can he be effective with the ball in his hand but also be an effective spot up shooter from three like that's really going to have to happen otherwise I think this much ballyhooed fit between Fultz Simmons and Embiid which I think is a solid one but so much of that is dependent on Fultz being able to hit shots because Embiid and Simmons create a ton with the ball in their hands as well and if you have a guy in Fultz you want to add him in who also the whole idea of him is like oh well yeah he can create with the ball in his hands he can run a pick and roll you can't go under on him but that also he can play off the ball and if it looks more like well you know he's a solid player but he's got to have the ball in his hands all the time as well then you really start running into issues right and somebody that i thought was going to create fit issues with the simmons and pairing and has not so far because he's been shooting well is dario Saric. and 
been he has been just molten from three of the last ten games. He's twenty four of fifty over fifty one overall, but forty nine percent on above the break threes, which is all but two. He's only shot two two from the corner right now. And so for the season, he's like last year. I thought he was shooting a lot of threes. He was at about thirty seven percent of his shots. This year, that's all the way up to forty four percent, and he's making thirty seven percent of those. I think this is a little rosier than I would expect long term. But again, it it can take time. If this is who he is or close to it, even if he's let's say thirty five percent, then he fits in much better with that core than I thought he would. Well, uh, and again, it's you know I don't want to quite call it binary because there's a little more nuance to it. But all right, as long as you shoot, and also there's kind of just a prejudice in the NBA too that like European white guys people just assume that they can shoot <laughs> unless their name is Thomas Sadoransky. Uh But for Sharich, as long as he's hitting it this well, as long as he can provide the spacing and has to be guarded out there, I think you know that's almost more important than whether he shoots 34 percent or 37 percent overall uh because again if he's going to play in some of these primary lineups uh, with these guys now when Fultz comes back I mean it's gonna be really interesting it it wouldn't shock me especially because they're in the midst of the playoffs and I don't expect Fultz to be really an effective player certainly on defense and you know probably not for a while on offense as well you know I expect Sarge to probably start the rest of the year the plan of course was for Fultz uh, to start uh until these shooting issues felled him for a time uh Sarge you you mentioned he's a unique player I mean he's still not that athletic of a player I mean he's not gonna get to the rim usually you know he he can use his size if he's got the ball but you know he's gonna get cut off and he'll have to put his back to goal and go in for a hook shot which he's despite his short arms he's actually has a nice touch on his hook shots he's good at keeping it away from bigger defenders uh but the athleticism markers can be problematic with him he, he does not shoot well around the basket for a big uh only 62 percent at the rim although that is still above league average and, and it's interesting actually who should talk about this a little bit this is doesn't have much to do with the sixers but i was thinking about this yesterday um you know cleaning the glass has will have percentiles for a guy compared to his position and i think that that's something that's useful but and you say oh well dario sharad shoots 62 percent at the rim that's in the 29th percentile for bigs but i actually don't necessarily necessarily like doing that by position for a lot of stats and shooting and efficiency being one of them because it's not really a zero-sum game you know if you're trying to evaluate a guy in terms of all right who's going to replace him then I understand it but also I think if you're just like trying to evaluate in terms of hey do we want this guy taking these shots or not you know if you have a point guard who shoots you know in the 40th percentile at the rim or something uh you know point guards don't shoot as well at the rim but that's still a shot that you want someone taking because they're at the rim and Sharich yeah it's 62 percent the rim that's below average for a big but it's still a, a shot that you want him taking so i like to look at it more in terms of and not to say that this information comparing to position isn't useful but i look to like to look at it more just in terms of comparing it to the league as a whole and not only the league as a whole but just the overall shot pro- profile for a given situation like even you know versus overall half court offense to kind of determine what's a good shot and what's a bad shot again not saying that it's not useful information but that that's kind of like the way i like to look at it a little bit more of like all right you know is this efficient is this just good overall for the team for this shot to be taken what i would say is if you have the the background to put it in a greater context yourself then you can kind of ignore the percentile thing but as a shorthand for people who are a little bit more casual about it who are getting into the place where we like to think that we are i think it can provide some value the other thing that i want to talk about with the sixers is just the schedule so we mentioned a couple times in the first half of this that boston has played six more games than everybody else and a part of that is because they're playing this game in london on 
Thursday. The Sixers are playing the same game in London on Thursday and have played the same number of games as everybody else in the league. So it's weird that that split happened, but this is going to be, other than the rest, a tough go of it for them. Between now and presumably the next 15-60, they play Boston in that neutral site game, Toronto, Boston, and Milwaukee, and that that's tough. So we'll, we'll get a, a better idea of where they are. And then they also have San Antonio, OKC, Milwaukee again before the trade deadline. So excited to see what this team looks like before they have to make some of these big decisions, though my anticipation is that their big decisions will come in June and July rather than in February. And also worth noting too that since they've had more of a, a thicker schedule coming up, you know, that's always something to watch it with Joel Embiid and his availability both in terms of minutes and actually suiting up for the game. Uh, let's move on here. What's next? Next up is the New York Knicks. The Knicks are only two games under 500. They're 19 and 21. But unfortunately for them, three and eight since the last 15 and 60. Their negative 1.1 net rating puts them 18th. They're 15th in offense, 16th in defense, and 538 gives them a 17% chance of making the playoffs. There are a couple of different factors that have led to this happening. They've played more on the road, which they had this insanely home heavy schedule moving forward. And also, as has been the case in the last couple seasons, Kristaps Porzingis has not been as effective, and this is more broad than just these last couple weeks, but he's been less effective over the last month or so than he was early in the season when he was doing so great. Yeah, since December 1st, a number of interesting notes on Porzingis. Uh, since he's fallen off, he's uh, 42% on catch and shoots. He actually takes a lot of catch and shoot two-pointers, uh, which is probably something that he'll do often in pick and pop or coming off a screen. He actually takes 4.3 catch and shoot twos per game. Uh, and he makes 42% of those, which is decent. And most of those catch and shoots, remember, are, are in the half court. Uh, and 4.1 catch and shoot threes, but he's only hitting 33% uh, on the catch and shoot threes, which is not a great number for a guy who's supposed to be a great shooter. Another thing that's really interesting, and this is something that we tracked for, for him for a while. And again, he, he has massively exceeded expectations for me in terms of when he was drafted. Other people had higher expectations, but he's still not there yet, really as the guy who you're just going to give it to and have him go get a bucket. Uh, He was hitting a lot of those shots early. That is now no longer the case. Once he puts the ball on the floor, he shoots 24% on pull-up jumpers. And that just, the more dribbles he has to take, this is the case with many players, of course, uh, the worse it gets. But he really does not create a ton of separation and guys get up into his body and he just, he shoots a really poor percentage on those pull-up shots. He also is shooting extremely poorly in the restricted area. We talked about Sharich. Porzingis shoots 57% in the restricted area at 7-3. And part of that is his own failings. He can get bumped off his shot a lot. I actually was very pleased with how he shot in the restricted area last year. I thought he had really made some strides and, and dealing with getting bumped with, and his touch. But, you know, I'm not sure whether it's kind of these recurring lower body injuries, nagging injuries that he's had or what. But 57% in the restricted area for someone like him is not good at all. Uh and then the other thing that's been a real problem for him, which we can hit on even more, it, it's been talked about, uh, Ben Falk wrote a piece about it, and it's something that even we've talked about since the draft process with him. And again, he's a wonderful player, but you know this is just with young guys, you want to talk about where are the areas for improvement and passing the ball is absolutely one of those for him. There are a couple different ways that passing can really help a player. You know, you could say open court stuff, and but two of the big ones for a player as big as Porzingis is, is 
is passing out of double teams and passing out of post-ups. Sometimes those are the same thing. Sometimes they're not just depending because he, he does things in isolation as well, like isolation, not post-ups. And he just, it seems to, to me that one of the big parts is that he's just not looking for it in the way that a lot of other guys are. I mean, you're, you, the, the ideal in this, which he's never going to reach is somebody like LeBron, who's basically always looking for passes. Every, it seems like every second he has the ball. And the benefit of that when you're as tall as he is, is that there are things that will become open and his angles for passing actually, if he got there would be more open because he's so big, but there have only been 10 times this year where a team has doubled him and he's passed out of it, which is too few. And also he's well, really, yeah, and then it, and it resulted in, and it in results a in a bug. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I should clarify yeah. That. In, in, in the post. Yeah. So yeah, it, because it, otherwise and, it wouldn't get logged. Well, and, and another thing too is uh, in isolate and, and we've, I've got uh, DeMarcus Cousins as a comparison. I'll give you his stats in a moment, but uh, Porzingis has finished 79 isolations with either a shot or a turnover and he's passed uh, into a shot. And this isn't just directly. It could eventually result in a shot. That's how it gets logged on Synergy. He's only passed out of it five times, <laughs> which is uh, remarkable. And then in the post, just in general, he passes out of 16.4 percent of his post-ups and in comparison demarcus cousins a guy who is really high usage he passes on 29 percent of his post-ups uh so that that's a comparison and just if you watch the tape you know and ben had some good video examples of this if you wanted to go on his site if you're a subscriber which you absolutely should be uh he really only makes the pass and i've noticed this even going back to his days at sevilla when the guy like just crosses right in front of in front of his face on a cut or you know just kind of if he's posting up the guy will kind of move right into his vision for a three otherwise he just really doesn't seem to see guys and then another thing too is that when he tries to either get into the post or iso you know he'll put the ball on the floor he doesn't really Really blow by his guy so he get, he'll get cut off he'll try to spin back and then little guards who just kind of go from behind his vision can just you know take run like 20 feet and just knock the ball away from me as that little awareness sometimes and, and can turn the ball over a fair amount although overall certainly he deserves credit for how little he actually turns it over and then the pick and roll is also very interesting for him He's one of the few players who actually shoots it better off a of pick and pop. He's one of the better ones in the league at that. And on rolls to the basket, this in, in, and he doesn't do that too often. But part of it is his poor finishing around the rim for his lower efficiency on rolls to the basket is in the fourth percentile rolling to the basket. And also the part of it, too, is that all of these issues that we've talked about are exacerbated by the fact that he's playing with another traditional center nearly all the time. And so if you are rolling to the basket and you're playing with another traditional center, well, there's going to be a lot more help there than if that guy is just spaced out in the corner. And same thing with his ISOs, same things with his post-ups. There's always going to be more help available. It's tougher to, to drive to the rim, although I still maintain he doesn't really have the quickness to do much of that anyway. So I'd be very curious to see how his offensive numbers would change if he played more center uh and defensively i think he's getting to the point where he can start to hold up as a center and that's a big reason why against all odds this defense has actually been average this year yeah and so so you have that trade-off and over time eventually maybe we'll get that opportunity but they have all these centers that have done a good job so it, it gets a little bit complicated they per cleaning glass have yeah. a a 110.5 a 110.5 offensive rating when porzingis has played center but that 
that's only 266 possessions. So that's, you know, in the like 130 minute range. So not not as much. And some of that has been crunch time. And so you're going against other teams' best defenses. But, you know, I think I think there's some serious potential there as they turn over this roster over the next couple of years to really get a better sense of it. Yeah, the Knicks did have a nice win in Dallas over the weekend as Frank Nilakina outplayed Dennis Smith after LeBron James talked shit about the Knicks for uh, drafting Nilakina over Smith and certainly no one else uh, in the world or on this podcast has done that exact same thing and you know obviously one game it does not make it but it, it was interesting to hear Rick Carlisle praising Nilakina's competitiveness defensively uh, which has been a common theme for him lately because Dennis Smith's defense has been terrible but it's good to see uh, Nilakina play well and I continue to like his potential I continue to think he's not going to be a superstar but I think he could be a, a solid player in the NBA for a long time and there's a, a, a lot of value in having a guy who's as good defensively as he is that you might need depending on how his point guard skills develop something different next to him it's a shame that they're not going to be in the range probably to get Luka Doncic because I think that combo would have been awesome but that's the way it works out are you ready to move on to the next team uh yeah real quickly I mean what do you think their chances are of making the playoffs the next <sighs> 20 20 maybe about 20 percent. i think that's you know i think they can play you know they'll need to play better on the road than they have the last couple of games though they did have that win against dallas and they're going to need somebody to fall back i think that's really what's going to be but when you have probably about four teams that are in range where an injury that kept a guy out for about a month could do that i'd say one in five is fair yeah i mean they, they sit in 10th place in the conference right now and still have that really road heavy schedule coming up i i, I would expect them by the end of this month to be something in the range of at least five games below 500 and kind of looking like uh, that could be about it and that obviously it's going to crystallize for the trade deadline or maybe it won't uh where this team is trying to go that they don't really have anyone who's on an expiring contract that they would want to move to try to get uh some assets here uh okay yeah let's move on to who's next the hornets the hornets are next the hornets are 15 and 23 five and four since the last 15 and 60 negative 0.7 net rating puts them 16th 16th again in offensive rating 12th in defense 530 gives them a 38 percent chance of making the playoffs so so much larger than the knicks and they had a, a really successful california trip they were three and one including uh they beat the warriors in that game that we talked about a little bit and they crushed the kings and they crushed the lakers which you would say is is no big deal except that a couple other teams have gotten beat by them recently yeah i mean any blowout win on the road no matter who it's over for the vast majority of teams is something to be extremely happy about i mean that's just the nature of home road in the nba and and since justin garcia tweeted it i've become incredibly interested in this concept that the the hornets have lost at that point in december had lost 13 consecutive games decided by three points or fewer and it's the longest streak in NBA history and it's still going not because they've lost more games but because they haven't played a game decided by three or less in during that time so still waiting to to kind of see how that goes I'm still concerned about the same stuff that's been concerning the whole time they are there so they're a plus 5.2 net rating with Kemba Walker on the floor wait wait hold on so can we go back to to that streak you're talking about I, I uh I think there's a case that this is just like the unluckiest team in the NBA though 
the last few oh, years. Yeah. Not necessarily even due to injuries, but I mean, th- that thing that you have in there that opponents are shooting 80.6% from the free throw line against them, which is, you know, that's just pure bad luck. Uh, you know, the, that's really miserable that their uh, their performance in close games. I mean, to, to be eight games under 500 with a negative 0.7 net rating. And in fact, cleaning the glass has them as the second most unlucky team in the league based on the number of wins. They have won 3.2 games fewer than expected. Would you like to guess who the unluckiest team in the league has been? I know for a time it was the Warriors, but I don't think it is now. Cleveland? Uh, No, Cleveland has been... Oh, no, luckier. Cleveland has good record in close games. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks have a oh, negative. Oh, yeah, because they're 5-21 they're and 21 in close games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They have won 4.8 games fewer than expected. And by the way, pretty remarkable that, like, remember when OKC was, like, had won, like, five fewer games than expected through, like, 20 games? And now they are fourth in that stat, but they are only won 2.7 games fewer than expected. Uh, and th- so they, they've gotten not as lucky as they were unlucky but uh certainly the pendulum is swung there it is not swung for teams like charlotte and dallas I'll give you another one on top of that. So Charlotte is, they have a negative 3.3 net rating in, cl- in close clutch situations, which is 16th in the league. So it's, you know, it's right around the middle mark. They're 6 and 14 in those games. Whereas teams like the Wizards are, have a negative 12, 6 net rating and they're 11 and 12. So like, they just had some real tough luck in close games that I think a lot of the, they had a couple of nice finishes. So yeah, I mean, you could see this looking very different for them, but in a certain way, depending on how they approach this, it could lead them to the decisions that they probably should have made anyway. But I want to get back to the Kemba thing because I just find oh, yeah. it so fascinating. So they have a 5.2 net rating when Kemba's on the floor. That is better than Giannis. That is better than LeBron James. But they have a, and I'm not saying he's a better player. I'm not saying the Hornets are a better team, but that gives you an idea of what this team can be in those minutes. That's over 1,200 minutes on the season. He has only sat for 590 minutes. So that's less than a third of the time. They've been outscored by by 13.1 points per 100 possessions, and that's why they're below water. It's unbelievable that they have been that far off in his minutes. And we talked about this a lot with Russell Westbrook last year, and that was a part of his MVP case. And this is where, if, you, if your team isn't just, is that degree not good enough, where that falls off enough where you're not going to make the playoffs. And the drop-off is nearly entirely on the offensive end. They're a little bit worse defensively, but Walker doesn't really do that much to where you would think that he is helping their defense a, a ton just individually he does play a larger percentage of his minutes with Dwight Howard which might be part of that Howard's still a, a quality defensive option against most teams but the offense uh, drops by 15.5 points per 100 just on its own um from very solid you know about top 10 in the league type of level when he's out there to seven points per 100 worse than the worst team in the league when he is on the bench and you noted this that Batum and this is something we've talked about a lot has only played 149 minutes without Kemba so that's 20 percent of the minutes that Kemba and Batum has missed time of course early on with that elbow injury and but nonetheless he's been back since you know the first eight or nine games or so 
he's only played 149 minutes without Kemba that's 20 percent of the minutes that Kemba hasn't played has he played no that's 20 percent of that's 20 percent of Batum's minutes has been without Ah, oh okay my bad yeah um but the Hornets uh when he plays without Kemba a totally respectable negative 2.0 net rating and even last year when their performance without Kemba was a major problem we talked about it all the time when Batum played and Kemba didn't it was only negative 4.9 they would kill to be negative 4.9 without Kemba on the floor right now because they're negative 13.1 instead so uh and they had all these bench problems with cody zeller being out and really no good backup bigs last year that was the big reason that they were so bad last year um without Kemba on the floor so I mean my advice would be play Nick Batum every minute that Kemba is not on the floor and just see if you can scrape by well and there's another reason for that and some of this goes to just the sample of the season but they've been better defensively with the other four starters and Jeremy Lamb instead of Nicola offensively offensively they've been better offensively in those circumstances so it's another reason to try it you can even start Batum and just give him a quick hook bring in Jeremy Lamb and then have him play in those minutes and also something crazy for the Hornets and I'm a little worried that 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 this will have them avoid the some of the decisions that they should be making they play eight of their next nine games at home and they it's going to be against some good teams so they're they might lose some of them but if this if this goes really well they'd be like see we can still fight we don't need to really think about how this team is constructed we need to do we'll just keep it together we can still make a run at it and that's not what they should do no i don't think so and and it's always whenever there are injuries that can always be used as an excuse but i don't think overall this year they've been a particularly injured team they're probably right about average you know zeller has missed time batum has missed time but no one else has really had any major injuries walker has played most of the season howard has played all season um so they definitely don't have like the deepest bench or anything but that's just in part due to them not having that many good bench players to begin with kemba walker it's we've discussed a little bit the, the idea of trading him uh i had that idea of him going to the knicks tim bontemps recently wrote a piece about how they probably need to move on from him because they just have this team that's going to be potentially in the tax next year and is going nowhere right now but just to to uh put a little bit of a thought on it here what do you think the chances are that he actually gets moved before the deadline one in three. Oh, i think it's way lower i would say like 10 percent. this is just this is not i mean that would be like an actually like bold proactive move and i just think that like this charlotte organization overall just well, doesn't move that way they're very so very conservative i'll give you the reason why and it's because i think there's a chance that team c him as the most gettable good point guard and so somebody else makes an offer that they're like well damn we should consider this i don't think they're going to initiate on kemba much at all but if somebody else says hey like this could be our way back in that could be that could be a situation where they do it but yeah maybe now i'm now i'm trying to move back on him no i'm gonna stick with my one and three i'm sticking with it yeah woge wrote a piece today which we'll talk about more tomorrow uh when we get into some news but basically as a trade deadline primer which is worth reading but uh, one of the things that he said is that he expects a little bit more of a tepid market there do not appear to be that many teams that are really just like in go for it mode uh with the strength of some of the top teams in the nba um and you know what would be really interesting for kemba uh and again the spurs just don't operate this way but san antonio he would be i think an awesome fit there oh that would be amazing uh all right let's move on here who's next so the hornets are really the dividing line between teams that have an outside chance and teams that don't really have a chance 
chance because the next team with re- in terms of record is the Brooklyn Nets. The Nets are competitive and fun. They're feisty, but they're 15 and 24. They're four and six since the last 15 and 60. They've, they've played a lot of close games, but when you're nine games under 500 and it looks like that's going to be about the line, it's going to be a challenge. Negative 2.5 net rating puts them 23rd. They're 20th in offensive rating, 18th in defensive rating. 538 gives them a 7% chance of making it in, and that, that seems fine. This is but, another By team the way, let, let, let's just to talk about that statistical resume overall. I mean, negative 2.5 net rating, that's way better than we thought there'd be. I think even if, yeah. if Jeremy Lin had been healthy all year and without Russell playing either, now you can certainly make the argument and uh, Spencer Dinwiddie's RPM is a great one for it that uh, D'Angelo Russell may not have helped them win games at this point in his career. But for them to be 18th in defense, I mean, that's really just remarkable when you consider that they don't have any kind of good defensive big men who are playing. I mean, Jared Allen is a rookie. He's probably their best defensive big man. Mozgov hasn't played at all. Tyler Zeller is a horrendous defensive player. Uh, and so, I mean, they've gone with a lot of these small ball lineups, a lot of the switching. They do at least have, I mean, one thing that, that maybe is underrated is that with Dinwiddie at 6'5", they've got a lot of guys who can switch. You know, they've got good size. I mean, they're playing some of these lineups with Hollis Jefferson at center. And I just they just deserve a ton of credit for being that good in defense. I know 18th is no great shakes, but when you consider where they've been these last few years and just looking at, at their overall personnel, I mean, you don't, they don't have anyone on this team that you would look at and say, oh, this guy's like a really good stalwart defensive player. They have some solid guys, but no one who's amazing. Uh, I think that deserves a lot of credit to be at that point. And one of the elements of a good coach is what they do with their personnel. And I think that's a, been a huge feather in the cap for this coaching staff so far is just the, the, the shots that they're forcing opponent teams to make. Their opponents are not taking threes. Only 26.7% of opponent shots have come from distance and only 31.8% at the rim. So they're basically forcing a ton of mid-range shots. And you think about, well, who's doing that? I mean, they have, they can switch. They can get guys into, into situations where they have to really create and they don't have the separation they had before. But that's really, really impressive. And I, I think that, that like, it's crazy because I think the bones in many degree, to, to ways of a good team, just the way they're coaching and the, what they're instilling are there. Just, they don't have the talent level. My concern is it's going to take a long time to to totally renovate the talent level of this team. Like they can get incrementally better, absolutely, just by getting healthier and using some of their small assets. But they don't have their own draft pick this year. Then that's a whole other year, and then then all the stuff with cap space. But where I well before I actually get into the other stuff, D'Angelo Russell update on him. I had a note in here kind of about like he was progressing along. Uh, Mark said that on New Year's Eve, and Woj reporting on Monday that he will be practicing with the D with the G league team today and so it was the progression was originally going to be eight weeks after his arthroscopic knee surgery but that's good we'll see we'll see if they actually look better after he gets back just because Dinwiddie has been so spectacular and one the thing that I wanted to focus on though in this section is Alan Crabb because once Russell gets back that's going to be the focus and Dinwiddie we've talked about before so Crabb is the other big swing that Marks made this summer so they they did the D'Angelo Russell trade then they did that and then you could argue that Demari Carroll situation as well, where they took on a first round pick to take on his contract. But Crab is going to be in all likelihood on this team for a long time. And there are elements that you can like about what he's done, but then there's a lot that's concerning, mostly because it confirms what you and I were concerned about before. Yeah. I mean, he's just, you mentioned this and we've talked about it a lot that he's just, you know, a D 
dependent offensive option. He's not a guy who really can defend that well on the wing. And he's really to have value. He's got to shoot the way he did in Portland, you know, 44% or so. And a lot of it just is that the same shots he's been taking haven't been going in. But he's also not a guy, a Kyle Korver, a Redick type of shooter where, you know, he's going to come off of screens. Uh, he can't really do anything off the dribble when he comes off the screen. Not that Korver can do that either, but Redick kind of can. But he's not just like so fearsome, both in terms of the versatility of a jump shot, getting a shot off with a, a hand in his face with a quick window. And in terms of just how often it's going to go in, that teams are just going to really react to him coming off a screen and that then that can open up uh, other stuff. So he's he's got to, number one, be better at the stuff that he's supposed to be really good at, which I, I think that 44% over always overrated him a little bit because in large part, and also I think he was really good coming off that flare screen action in Portland. That's not something that the Nets really do a ton of. He was enough of a threat on that, but it, that's a little bit different than some of the actions that teams run more often. Uh, and then defensively, he's just, you know, solidly below average, doesn't really get steals, not really strong enough to guard some of the best players on the other team and so that it makes him really more of a bench guy and he's due 18.5 million the next two years the last of which is a player option uh anything else you want to say on him or, or can i move on to talking a little bit about their game against the celtics uh, over the weekend uh just briefly also that he he provides very little value offensively outside of that shooting yeah. because he doesn't get to the rim he has only taken nine percent of his shots to the rim he has made 68 percent of those but nine percent is just way uh, it's just really really low and his free throw attempt rate is 0.19 which is also super low he makes 84 percent, but he just doesn't get to the line very much so it really yeah, and is you need your two guard to be able to dribble like he's a two yeah. he, at the three he's not really an adequate defensive option so like you need to have two guys on your team who can uh, run a pick and roll and, and crab really just cannot do that at, at this point and so yeah the, so he'll be paid for a lot of time and one weird thing before you get on to the to the game against the celtics is it's just weird that karis lavert who we'll talk about in a future iteration of this joe harris and alan crab all have almost identical rpms right now despite playing largely the same position they're all just at about a negative one and i just as i was going through because i'm like oh how's crab doing an rpm i just noticed they're all right next to each other and i was it cracked up yeah, let's talk about that boston brooklyn game uh jaleel okafor had some nice minutes i thought the start of the fourth quarter was interesting uh he was very effective working as a dependent player uh, in pick and rolls he had a nice dunk he got an offensive rebound uh and then when he was asked to just attack with the ball in his hands he certainly had plenty of a, a high usage rate and was posting up had one play where he got better position which was good to see but on all three of his attempts he made one of them he really was not moving towards the basket he was trying to just extend out with his big hands shoot touch shots uh, in many cases either fading across the lane or, or fading away and that's just not going to cut it in today's day and age especially with just the massive size advantage that he has against most players he's got to just do more power moves this is a criticism of that we've had for a long time he really likes the the balletic or balletic balletic i guess it would be it uh, kind of post moves uh and i think the more they've got him running it pick and roll the more they've got him trying to get deep seals he does look thinner as well and it wasn't too horrible defensively although most of it was with Kyrie out of the game and then they actually went with semi ojale at center to play against him and, and he followed Kyrie in pick and roll and they took him out and, and never brought him back in so that that game got closed with ojale at center versus the hollis jefferson at center lineup and uh, those lineups with hollis jefferson at center not a ton of minutes but they're actually plus 3.2 differential 
with him there and so it was just a total switch game nobody really was able to get much going other than just switch and try to go one-on-one and Dinwiddie he was just getting to the rim time and time again blowing past his initial defender now he couldn't get a call at the rim a couple of times he actually got legitimately stopped other times he just should have gotten a foul call but just the first step that he's had and he was able to score on a few layups as well was just really really impressive and the next broadcast was talking about how he settled for more jumpers late in games and he really I mean he probably had I would say eight or nine drives to the rim just in the fourth quarter alone that resulted in uh shot attempts or fouls or should have been fouls so that was that was pretty impressive to see um I mean these are good defenders largely that the Celtics uh, had on him uh your boy Joe Harris uh was uh outstanding effort wise he actually had a couple of blocked shots he got on the offensive glass big offensive rebounds yeah 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 and and so and also like in in that late stretch I thought Brooklyn's first shot defense was quite good they were for they were forcing Boston into some tough shots except there was I think one in transition where they fell apart a little bit and gave up an open corner three to to Jason Tatum but they I thought they did a nice job overall was a Boston has some really good contested shot makers and b there were so like especially that play where Marcus Smart got the offensive rebound I also thought it wasn't a foul Smart fell over and the most reasonable interpretation of that from where the refs were was that he fell over because of someone else but he just lost his balance a little bit after getting the rebound and so he got free throws whereas Spencer did what he never did late which was infuriating but there again there's a lot to like here with the Nets and they did end up losing that game get you know they got close and then um but it was I mean, Dinwiddie missed that one shot late, and and Kyrie had a had a tough floater, and the Boston Celtics ended up winning. Yeah, I thought they outplayed the Celtics in terms of their shot quality. It was just getting two offensive rebounds by the shooter. Smart got one, and then he he got that controversial foul call, and then Irving got another one, and then he kicked it out to Tatum. For the, that was actually how that Tatum open three happened. Was Irving That's it right. was in transition, but Irving got his own rebound and then found Tatum. And then they had one other defensive breakdown where they had a side pick and roll, and uh, Rondé thought they're going to switch and they did and he was late closing out on Tatum and Tatum blew by him for a dunk and there was there was no help at the rim but yeah I thought that they outplayed him and they were getting better shots uh and just you know that, that's why the finishes of close games can be based on, on luck a lot of the time all right let's uh move on here Chicago Bulls 14 and 26 six and six it's the last 15 and 60 they're still a negative 5.7 net rating which is 26th in the NBA they're 28th in offense 23rd in defense 538 gives them a three percent chance of making the playoffs and i think a big part of that is they need to play at a, a better than 55 win pace to get to 500 which is a good calibrator for where the playoff line is going to be this year and while they had that stretch where they were just awesome I don't think they're a 55 win team moving forward, especially if they see this as a sign to, to maybe move on from Biritich or some of the other stuff. So I think a question that I wanted to ask you, and we'll, we'll both answer it, is it's January 8th. We're almost exactly halfway through their season, one game short. What kind of pay, win pace do you think they're going to play at for the rest of the season? Yeah, well, if you, you look at their recent performance here, they have lost four or five uh, after a nice stretch and uh, have given up 100 124 points or more in their last four games uh and 
some of those to uh portland though that was in overtime so <clears throat> not as bad quite as as it looks there but then they got worked by toronto actually beat dallas while giving up 124 points that was a, a crazy game on the road and then got destroyed uh at indiana by 30 over the weekend so they do seem to have slowed down a little bit i mean i think they'll play like kind of you know a 29 to 32 win type of team the rest of the year i was gonna say that at full strength i think they could be because remember they're also getting zach levine back at some point in the near term well that's a, that's an interesting question of whether levine certainly in terms of the on-off metrics has always been a negative player that doesn't mean that he can't it doesn't have a uh, potential and i know, think that'll I think be different help, on this team yeah, he'll help their offense enough that yeah but but i do expect their defense to get worse i mean if he's going to replace justin holiday who's a solid defender although he definitely man that guy's had way too much of a green light i mean he started the year off as basically the only thing they could do was get him along too he and robin lopez but now that dunn is back and miritich is back you know he doesn't need to take this many shots but nonetheless he's a solid defender and levine especially coming off an acl i, I found actually that guy's defense uh after acl injuries is one of the things that really seems to take the longest to come back if in fact it, it ever does and levine as we know has not been a, a good defender in his career but yeah i think he'll probably help the offense more than he hurts the defense the offense is still uh, has been a struggle at times so where i would go is that i think if they were full strength it would be around they'd be around a 35 win pace team but you never expect that for it so yeah i'm gonna go low 30s like 30 31 win, win pace for the rest of the season would be my guess chris dunn has uh, continued to emerge to some degree usually works in pick and roll he's not really forcing a, a ton of help so uh that's part of why he uses so many of his possessions there and and below average in terms of efficiency 0.8 points per possession and overall 49 percent true shooting not good at the rim only 54 percent and this is a team that actually has pretty decent spacing now uh so you would hope that he could be a little bit better there um he shot it surprisingly well uh, on twos outside the paint at 44 percent but from three back in the high 30s but at least has been uh, more willing to take them and just in general on pull-up twos 41 percent that is solid enough he has been rather inconsistent i mean he'll have really strong games and then you know i think in part because he's relying on, on that shooting uh, from long two will have uh, some total clunkers well, yeah, but, but he had... started he started having more good games than bad lately it was just you know it, at the start of the year it was like three three or 14 games and then one really good game now he's kind of more about 50 50 yeah since christmas he's played in seven games two of them he scored fewer than 10 points and then in the other ones he scored 17 or more which is just a, a crazy split to have that and it's not like there's a small minutes game. Those are all 28 plus minute games. Just sometimes like the game against Toronto, he was one of six from the field. But then the two days later against Dallas, that game where they lost, where they won 127, 124, he was 12 of 17 from the field, four or five from three. So yeah, the four and or five he from just three cooked one. Dennis Smith oh, man. in that game. Just crushed uh, him. Yeah. And so yeah, it, it, I, we don't talk about fantasy much, but like if you're uh, have a point guard who's going up against Dallas, probably want to, uh, you know, give him some minutes or, or, and pray, uh, pray that, uh, Rick Carlisle doesn't start reducing Smith's minutes uh, because his defense is so bad. Dunn has also come in for some criticism for uh, purported selfishness down in the end of games, and 32% usage for him is too much. They have better offensive players uh, on this team. I know it's easier for point guards to take the shot, and, and he hasn't been bad. 58% true shooting in the clutch. Uh, in the 19 clutch games that he's played, the Bulls are 9-10 and 10 in those games, which for a bad team is actually not a, a terrible record. Uh, and 
the one nice thing too is that he really has been getting into the paint he's taken more shots in the paint than jeppers so he's at least being aggressive but there were some times late in games where just looking at the film he was really a little selfish and took some bad shots so he could stand to be a little bit more egalitarian part of that could just be the offense that they're running more high pick and roll as well uh but so he's he's been better than expected i i expected to look at his numbers and see that they would be bad just based on like some of the games that i've watched the end of where he's taken some bad shots but overall uh not too bad i still think he could afford to uh let some other guys work a little bit more at, at the end of games. he really i mean that's part of his competitiveness and his mentality but you, you can tell he kind of has the attitude that like you know this is winning time i gotta win the game i'm gonna be the main guy and you know he's not quite that good yet they have better offensive players than him and if we're talking about chris dunn we should also mention that his defense has still been very good this year and i love just the competitiveness the way he gets into guys and the fact that he's able to stick with point guards you know it does provide value there were there we've talked about how point guard defense is not necessarily the most valuable but if you can actually stop a guy from doing what he wants which dunn doesn't always but if when he can there's a real value to that especially on teams that have one creator and while i hope that he can be more than this against certain teams he would be just a monstrous defensive point guard on second units because so many teams just don't have a secondary creator where he could just make it so that the other team can't score in those circumstances and i think he can be better than that but as a fallback that would be nice yeah he certainly has exceeded expectations this season a few other bullet point notes here uh larry markinen doesn't shoot incredibly well at the rim 61 percent as a, a seven footer but he's generally is playing with a, another traditional big uh 35 percent from downtown on 6.5 attempts per game he, he has one of the most versatile jump shots maybe even the most versatile jump shot i've ever seen from like a seven foot big man obviously kevin durant who, who's close to his size would exceed that but even even compared to dirk i think markinen has and now it's probably not going to go in as much as dirk but markinen has a quicker release and and one that he can kind of take it from more angles uh, moving quickly as well coming off the of screens than we saw from dirk uh certainly late in his career uh and then he totally avoids turnovers that's something that's, that's why it's nice to have a, a big man of his ilk uh it's not been as effective on spot outs better in pick and pop uh but that's probably all just noise in terms of uh those are similar type of shots so i think it's just, looking at the overall resume is probably better with him uh david nawaba who i i think his return has been underrated as far as improving their defense they've been much better with him out there than with denzel valentine as a three he's really their only option uh to guard uh, opposing wings uh, with any kind of consistency uh he doesn't even think about shooting jump shots but he gets to the rim a, a ton and he shoots it pretty well there and he's actually an underrated ball handler he's got kind of these uh, long looping crossovers that he can use to, to attack the defense when you know they're closing out him and they're not right there when he catches the ball which of course is the case because he doesn't need to be guarded uh and then they uh the one-two punch uh has continued to uh play well for them yeah i mean 242 minutes at this point and they still have a positive 13.5 net rating so they are going overwhelmingly against second units but they've been able to to push it and chicago now that they're closer to full strength they have a little bit more depth than they did early in the year when they were just putting out some skeleton crews so they've been more fun to watch as well and a lot of the kind of weirdness with some of the like they're so conservative defensively is i think it's due to personnel i mean when you have robin lopez at center you're going to be a good defensive rebounding well, team yeah, and they have or they'll play with like with porta 
Chris or Miritich or, or Markinen at, at center. I mean, whether you want to say Miritich or, or Markin is the center when they play together. But yeah, they don't really have anyone with any kind of athleticism, blocking shots, you know, getting out on the perimeter, moving their feet. So yeah, I mean, it, it makes a ton of sense with their bigs that they're just, they're not going to be an aggressive defense. Anything else on them that you think we, we need to talk about or are you ready to move on? Uh, They really suck in transition. Yeah. They don't, they don't have anyone who is capable of really re- running the ball down your throat done. You would think could kind of be that, but he's still not quite there yet. I mean, he's, he's shown more athleticism than he did last year in Minnesota, but he's still not, you know, a guy who's just like so fast in transition. And then, uh, you know, they take a lot of threes in transition, but uh, those don't go in at, at a fantastic rate. And then uh, on the other end, in part because their offense is so bad, uh, they give up a ton of points at, in transition. But yeah, let's uh, move on to our next team. You said that with some excitement, maybe not remembering that it's the Orlando Magic. The Magic are 12 and 28, 1 and 8 since the last 15 and 60. <sighs> their negative 6 net rating puts them 27th in the league. They're 24th in offense, 28th in defense, and they're not going to make the playoffs. In the last 15 games, they have the worst offense in the league, which was something that was we thought they were past because of everything that they were going through. And yes, of course, they've missed Nick Vucevic for a lot of that time. They're actually below a point per possession. And something else that has been a big problem for them. And when you think about, you know, Aaron Gordon is having, I think he's having a good season, but they just haven't been able to rebound. They're 29th in defensive rebounding, 26th in offensive rebounding. And when you play a traditional center, or at least, ah, I, I don't know how you want to count Vooch there, but if you play a big, yeah, like he's a traditional you know, center. Yeah. If you, if you play bigs as much as they do to be down there, because a lot of the teams that are this low in rebounding are making other specific choices to eschew rebounding. They haven't really done that other than when Vooch is facing the four offensively. And to be that low is definitely concerning. And they're giving up the second most points on putbacks to go inside with that. That's, that's exacerbates some of their defensive issues. Yeah. If you're Golden State's death lineup, it's okay if you're not an unbelievable defensive rebounding team. Uh, if you're the Magic, you probably need to clean up there. And uh, with Vucevic out, they've been starting uh, Biombo. And overall, any unit, including him, has been terrible. And so it was pretty funny as I went to say, you know, I started off with a little hypothesis of like, oh, you know, maybe like Biombo, what like part of why his ratings are so bad is just because he hasn't played with good players. I'm like, okay, so John, since John Isaac has been out, he's had to play with like Spates and Hazonia. And so, so I was like, all right, I'll start with Spates. That's not like a real NBA lineup. I'll filter him out. Still terrible numbers overall. <laughs> it went, his net rating went from like negative 22 to negative 17. Like, oh yeah, but like Hazonia, you know, he's not really any good. You know, let's filter him out too. That's another crappy bench unit. It's not his fault. Uh, and then it goes up to like, you know, negative 15. And so I, I drilled, you know, Aaron Afalo, he's really, he's not really an NBA player at this point. Like took him out, you know, it goes up to like negative 14. And so finally, as I drilled down to it, there's really only been one lineup with him that's been effective. But the good news is that that's actually what has been their recent starting lineup uh, with Terrence Ross out Peyton Fournier Simmons Gordon and Biombo 179 possessions so uh, about 1.8 games worth they are 4.0 literally every other combination with Biombo has been just like <laughs> like negative 10 or worse it's really been awful and, and you know I think Biombo uh, hopefully he's had some nice games from like a fantasy stats perspective lately uh, and I still think there's a, a place for him to be effective he has not been shown the energy that he showed you know at the end of his run in Toronto but I, I think he could still actually be better for them than Vucevic just because they have a prayer of defending with him out there and I think he's a better defensive rebounder than Vucevic as well what would be in certain ways if you could kind of get him on board with it would be the idea
idea of something similar to what the Celtics have done at moments with Baines and what the Warriors have done with Pachulia of play him a short minute, a short stint, like six minutes or so with the starters against another team's traditional big and just say, play as hard as you can. If you play hard and you do good things, we'll give you a spot in the second quarter and then just go that way because then that puts Vooch in the place where he's more of a counter puncher, which I think when he comes back, which I think would be more useful for him and just kind of use the carrot and stick idea of the, if, if you actually do what you're supposed to do, we'll give you more minutes, we'll play. You, you can't change the way that you're going to pay him, but at least you can maybe try to try to encourage him that way because when he's engaged, he does bring something that none of their other bigs can do because he can actually play a little bit of defense. A few other notes uh, on Aaron Gordon, who has calmed down a little bit after an unsustainable start to the year, also missed some time with, I believe, a, a calf injury, but his three-point shooting only at 36.6 percent above the break now which is still a solid number uh but where he's made 16 out of 31 from the corners that really bumps his percentage up to around 40 percent catch and shoot threes 45 percent 28 percent on threes off the dribble which you know some of those you got to take every once in a while but that's i don't think is ever going to be his shot um and he's the guy who has only been assisted on 60 percent of his buckets which was a surprise for me that he's actually because when you watch his big games even you know it looks like much more that he's just getting set up but i think ultimately on a in a role on a better offensive team that's a, what it'll be for him i don't see him as a guy who's going to really create a ton but he can a, a, at least a, attack a close out and do stuff that way but to have him be the, the guy initiating the play i don't see that as a strength for him and then alfred payton actually at the league average in shoot, shooting percentage uh shooting an incredible 69 percent at the rim uh, i think he has really benefited from uh nikola vucevic's move out to the three-point line to get a little bit more space and also he probably just deserves credit it uh for increasing his finishing that had been a struggle for him uh, at times uh and you know i never really know what to make of him he's been toiling in orlando for a long time he'll have some times especially at the end of the year we'll put up some good statistical performances that clip where like his hair actually like got in his face like bounced into his face and like blocked his vision and he airballed a floater was, was fantastic uh but yeah i still am just it's really hard for me to come around him but he he is deserves credit for the incremental improvements he's made in this game he's shooting 37 percent from three but still only two attempts per game which is very very low uh and he still gets guarded the same way going under uh, on the pick and roll so I'm, i don't think anything has happened this year for me to change my outlook on him but it does look like it, once again he's made some incremental improvements this season and with peyton so he'll turn 24 in february and that's what he'll be when he's a restricted free agent this summer with him more so than with aaron Gordon, because even though Gordon isn't as scorching as he was earlier in the season, I think that there will be a market for him. This narrow restricted free agent market is going to be really challenging because he's going to want somebody to say, well, this is our best option. And that that is certainly possible, but there just aren't that many teams, especially if he has to wait until the moratorium. We don't know if he will. Maybe he can get a team that falls in love with him earlier. I, I I think it's really, really hard right now to project what he's going to get and whether he's going to be satisfied enough with that to, to just choose that over just even taking the qualifying offer. Like just, just on the idea of a different kind of bet than what Nerlens did, just because there are so few teams that are going to have money. But I, I, I'm, well, we still have a lot longer to figure this out, but I can see a market for Gordon. There are just going to be teams that want him. But with Peyton, there are a couple that you can look at and go, oh, maybe they'd be intrigued. But then you could also go, oh, crap, those teams might draft a point guard too. Yeah, not too many point guards available. Uh, but with Trey Young, 
Young emerging. At least that, that's maybe another one now uh, with uh, Trey Duvall and uh, Colin Sexton, who, who might be a target, but I don't know that anyone's looking at any of those guys uh, at the level of the top point guards uh, that we saw this year. Uh, with Peyton, I think the Magic could be in a position to really get him on a long-term deal if the you know for lower end starter money you know something along the lines of like nine to eleven million dollars per season or something like that on maybe like a three-year deal uh but the question is do they even want him at that price you know he was not drafted by this regime they're having a terrible first year you would imagine that there would be a feeling that they want a pretty much clean house um I don't know whether that would include coach Frank Vogel either, but yeah, it's really difficult for me to see them wanting to give Peyton a big offer and, you know, that there'd be any other teams that would feel that way about him either. But I think it is possible that he could emerge into being a lower end starter and, and that he could get, uh, be on a fair contract. It's just whether the Magic even want to offer him that or want to just say, hey, you know, we're going to, you know, I've got a mandate. I've got a five year deal as, as Jeff Welton and, and John Hammond, and we just want to go in another direction here. It could also even shift just uh, one of the good things for the Magic is if they take the lessons of just having this fall off and just say, hey, we need to get the best pick we can. And while there aren't that many point guards at the top of this draft, we talked, I mentioned that for other teams, it's also possible with them getting another potential high end talent or getting a high end talent, not another would be huge for them because they need they need guys at the top who can really generate reliable offense, who who require attention on the defensive end from from opposing defenses or that can center their own defense and while we really like Jonathan Isaac moving forward getting another high-end talent could help set them up and so if they lean into this and just really start tanking first of all they if they jump into it before other teams I think that would be really really good for them because they can fall far quickly there just aren't that many teams that are like the teams around them are going to keep trying so I would highly advise them to go with the youth movement let's call it that or even a spates movement that would help them too in terms of losing the Atlanta Hawks are 10 and 29 although a robust four and six since we last checked in on them they did lose uh, they're on a west trip right now they did lose pretty badly to a lakers team that had not won at home since november uh last night in a blowout as as lonzo ball was back in action negative 6.3 net rating is 28th in the nba they have the 21st ranked offense their defense in what i think would be a disappointment to you danny is 29th though with some of their front court injuries that's not a, a huge surprise and they are in pole position for worst odds and the lottery is projected to be three games worse at 23 and 59 uh than any other team uh magic kings and lakers all predicted to, to win 26 uh the suns actually predicted to be up to 30 as as are the bulls at, at this point so uh, i think that uh, you were on this first uh a number of people tweeted us uh, about this including uh our buddy brad roland uh uh, about that just amazing quick two that Schroeder had at the end of the Hawks Suns game. There are moments in my life where I feel like people would really enjoy just having a camera on me watching games because I went ballistic when this happened because <laughs> it was so so it was it was a really fun competitive game with the Hawks and the Suns and they made some free throws I believe it was free throws to to Phoenix did to go up three and so you're sitting there and you're like okay team is up three with six point five seconds to go so my first thing 
thing that I'm focusing on is, well, can the Suns foul? Because the, the Hawks didn't have any timeouts, I believe. And so you're thinking about that. You're like, oh, yeah, can they foul or would it, they go no, for No, they a shot? definitely had no timeouts. That's what made it even more ridiculous. And, they, and, didn't and they so, advance, I think they advanced the ball, right? They, they It had been preceded by a timeout. It might have been. But so so then they're, so they're sitting there. And so I'm focusing on, well, can the Hawks get a three up before the Suns foul? Or will the Suns screw up the fouling or something like that? Then all of a sudden, Dennis Schroeder drives to the lane and he there were some people thought he might have gotten fouled anyway like that or, oh maybe he could have gotten in one which was a big mistake by the suns to even get close enough to consider that and then he just throws up a layup bounce bounce on the rim and it drops in with like a second to go and so they lose like it was i i was blown away by it because it's just it, it's just such an insane thing i it, i mean it made you think like did he just not know what the score was or something like that but i mean i, I was just i was just sitting there going like this and, and that it was dennis schroeder of course was just just the, the kind of the chariotic because he ha- he has been much better in certain elements this year but you just kind of get the spaciness from him sometimes it's part of why Budenholzer sometimes gets really pissed at him so yeah I mean it, w- it was crazy and but just on a technical note before we get into the other substance the plan right now per Woj is that oh what and by now it's already happened that they're they're guaranteeing Isaiah Taylor's contract and Tyler Kavanaugh's contract so they're getting two of these roster spots and we should be getting closer on Dwayne Dedman a little bit after Christmas they said 10 to 14 days so we're getting I would say maybe hopefully we hear something new this week maybe he can come back early next week and Deadman would help with their defense they are actually I believe they are the only team where opponents are in the 10 most effective in terms of field goal percentage in every single zone so that's in cleaning the glasses that's you know rim floater range uh two-point jumpers corner threes non-corner threes they're they're 21st or below in all of those which is pretty impressive yeah that's not good and I think uh, missing Deadman has been a, a major issue for them defensively we'll talk about more about uh Schroeder's growth in a moment here but I want to take a look at uh, John Collins's defense about even uh in terms of net rating when he plays power forward that's 22 percent of his minutes and center actually 78 percent of his minutes Collins is one of those guys in terms of size where it's tough to classify him as the center but I would imagine that when he plays with anyone other than Deadman, they probably look at him as a center maybe Muscala is would be considered uh, a center when he plays with Collins, but Muscala at least, you know, shoots the three ball, which Collins does not really. Collins uh, only 0 of 4 uh, from three-point range. We saw him take a few of those in summer league, but not a shock that that is not he's not quite ready for prime time but he's shooting 59 percent from the field overall 32 percent of his shots are dunks and 57 percent of his shots overall are taken at the rim but that actually leads a, a pretty good percentage away from the rim and he only shoots 30 percent on shots outside of the restricted area uh when he's at center the team takes a massive amount of his shots at the rim that's not a, a huge surprise because he rolls to the rim really hard and, and he's a great dunker uh and usually he'll be uh, as the the one center they'll have uh, more spacing when he's at power four they only take 31 percent of the shots at the room again something that uh, makes sense and while they've not been good defensively opponents do hit 41 percent of their three-pointers when he is on the court and that's you know it's hard to say that that's his fault that they're shooting that high of a percentage they do get a, a fair amount of those up um anything you want to say on collins before we turn to shooter no i just want to see more of him and with a variety of other front court partners which we can see with the hawks when they're closer to healthy because deadman is more of the traditional five who can defend and then they can play the stretchy guys in Ilyasova and if they don't trade him and Mike Muscala and so yeah I want to see I want 
to see how it works out because I like John Collins, but we need to figure out what he does really well. But yeah, Dennis well, Schroeder- and also for Collins, I mean, the, the same fit questions remain as when he was drafted because, you know, defensively he's not going to be good enough as a center. And, you know, we've seen players like an Amari Stoudemire be a great player, but I think, you know, Collins is really, he's never going to be at that level. And Amari Stoudemire at his peak was one of the better offensive players that we've seen at the power forward position, but, or center as he played a lot as well. But for Collins, I think he's got to be just like even more of a ridiculous offensive force to justify playing because we've always talked about how it's difficult to craft a good defense when you just don't have a solid defensive center. And the good news is that he has the tools, but you know, I haven't seen a ton from him to say that he's made like great strides on that end yet. So let's move on to Schroeder. The biggest thing that has happened with him this season, and we have to see if this is going to continue, but right now it's a just gigantic reduction in his turnover rate. So yeah. using always a weakness gla- for him. Always a weakness for him. So using cleaning the glasses version of it, he's gone from a 14.8% turnover rate to 10.8, which is basically from 34th percentile to 85th among point guards. So that's that's just gigantic. And his assist rate has largely stayed the same. So what that means is that his assisted turnover has has really changed. So he went from from 3.3 turnovers a game to 2.6, which is a really big a really big thing. And he still, you know, like that that's that really helps because you're just reducing the amount of possessions that ended a turnover. That getting any shot up is obviously better, and a lot of those turnovers were live ball. So then you're you're helping your defense a little bit too. But he has the highest offensive rating of any of their guards at 105.7. This was before the Lakers game, so I don't know if that shifted it. Uh, but they've been killed defensively in his minutes. I think a lot of that is just with Deadman missing a lot of the time. They have a negative six net rating when he's out there, and with Schroeder as a as shooting himself, his shot distribution is pretty similar to prior seasons, except there's a small shift from restricted area and three to mid-range. The concern, though, is that he's only shooting 30% from three, and that just means that there are a lot of a lot of teams can exploit that, especially if they got better and had expectations. You know, if you're a lottery team, it doesn't it's not as big of a deal as it would be if they were like in the playoffs again, like they were in prior years. Uh, but one other positive with him uh, is that he's 12th in offensive RPM among point guards ahead of guys like John Wall, Eric Bledsoe, Drew Holiday and Jeff Teague, despite having vastly inferior offensive talent around them. Some of that is just the nature of the Hawks on off stuff because of who they play and who they don't play. But, you know, there there are elements of this that you can see are positive. And also, he's still only 24. This contract runs through his age 27 season, though. He gets 15 and a half million every year from now through 2020-21. Yeah, and he's been a, a very effective pick and roll scorer, as he always has, actually. He's never really looked that bad from an efficiency standpoint. He's 75th percentile in as the pick and roll ball handler when he finishes plays but the issue has been the lack of ball movement when he's out there the lack of vision although he's increased his assist rate this year that the team does not necessarily score well when he's out there through his own individual offense he's always looked like an effective player and then defensively the numbers have not been there this year uh i'm not going to put that much of it on him although he is uh, a guy that i had hoped could be like a really good defensive player and with his length and the quickness and be a guy who really pressured the ball and that has not really been his evolution since the first couple years or so in the league for him all right i think that'll do it for today uh anything we got to talk about before we depart uh hoping that i'm gonna do the individual max uh story time today and then i'll have another piece coming up i don't know how soon real gm's gonna run it on uh actually spencer dinwiddie's extension possibilities i i, I was i was watching some of them before the celtics nets game and i was like hey i wonder what his situation and so i wrote about that for real gm i'm guessing that'll be out this week and then that 
that will presumably be the Danny story time after that one. Yeah, Dinwiddie do basically just the minimum uh, again next season after which which is non guaranteed. They of course guaranteed his contract for this year. Uh, and so yeah, that would be interesting to bring him in. I think they probably would want to wait until they find out what happens with Jeremy Lin and his player option and, and see how D'Angelo Russell looks and stuff. But no, I mean he's been a, a quality player. He's been a, a quality starting point guard for the minimum this season. And really glad to see that with him considering you know that acl that he came off that he was dumped by the bulls uh dumped by the pistons and you know he's he has worked and worked to get himself back to being uh the type of explosive player that that he was uh before he tore that acl uh for us rest of the week we're gonna start getting into trade deadline previews probably do a gamer uh, on tuesday night uh, although i haven't actually looked at the schedule yet so <laughs> we'll see about that uh twitter nba show is thursday going to get to see this iteration of Cavs Raptors looking for that OG Ananubi and LeBron James matchup let's see whether uh the Raps have a chance against Cleveland this year and just uh gonna try and get loaded up here for the trade deadline which uh is everything is hitting so early this year Danny the season started so early the trade deadline is so early it's kind of throwing us out of whack a, a little bit but uh we will be there to cover it for you we'll talk to you all tomorrow night Till then at Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.